welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a very good afternoon as well to Luke Pady, who is a senior researcher at the Danish Institute of International Studies, and joins us from Copenhagen. Now we're having Luke on the show today uh, because we're just so excited about his new book that has uh, that has come out, uh, "The New Kings of Crude," and uh, it, it sounds like a great movie title. And you know, is there a movie version that can be coming out soon? Because you you picked a great title. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Well, we're, in the meantime, until the, uh, this, the script is written, we're happy to have you on the show to talk about, uh, importantly, about the relationship between China and India and Sudan. We're going to be focusing on China, Sudan, and South Sudan and kind of getting, uh, getting the, the deeper story. Now, Kobus, we've talked about South Sudan and Sudan for, oh, I'd say almost going on two years now. And it's been one of these stories that has been a recurring theme in China-Africa relations, and which is why Luke's book is so timely right now to take us beyond just kind of the, the headlines. And let me refresh people a little bit on some of the headlines that we've had of late. Um, we've had, you know, back in the 2008 Olympics, we had Mia Farrow and George Clooney singling out China for their support of the Sudanese government uh, against Darfur. They were raising awareness of the violence in Darfur. Then we've had the violence that came after the split between Sudan and South Sudan. China's caught in the middle, and it really turned out to be uh, China's, you know, moment in on the stage for international diplomacy, and a lot of attention went there. And it's one of these stories, like Zambia, like South Africa, that kind of keeps coming up in a recurring theme in the China-Africa discussion. So, Luke, you actually said in in at one point in the book, um, you said that Sudan, and I'm not sure if you're referring to South Sudan, but you said that Sudan is kind of we'll use it as a as a shorthand for both, is the centerpiece of China's engagement in Africa. And I think that may come as a surprise to people who, who hear so much attention coming out of Michael Sada's Zambia. We see so much coming out of Ghana. I mean, China's engagement in Africa is now deep and broad. And to suggest that Sudan is the centerpiece of it um, might come as a surprise. So kind of defend yourself. Sure. Uh, first of all, Many thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you both. I think that uh, you know, Sudan and, and now Sudan and South Sudan have been really the, the centerpiece of, of China's oil engagement in Africa. Um, they, China's uh, main national oil company, the China National Petroleum Corporation, CNBC, they first invested in a united Sudan uh, in the mid '90s, and this, as as you know, was you know a good ten years before uh, China's trade and economic relations with Africa were really uh, catching on and, and gaining steam, and at least entering uh, the the international public domain. So it, it was really an early investment um, in in an African oil industry, but also an investment that went beyond what we see uh, the Chinese. Uh, doing in, in Western Africa's oil industry. In Sudan, CNPC was really the main player. They built the oil industry uh, from the ground up, building the pipelines, building the key refinery, building export terminals on the Red Sea. So this was really um, an, an all-in for CNPC and, and really its first major international oil investment um, well before uh, they've expanded now across the world. But 
for the first 10 years of, of their investment, Sudan was, was critical. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about CNPC itself. One of the problems mm -hmm. or complications about, you know, about talking about China and Africa is that it's so difficult to separate the state from state-owned institutions, from semi-private mm -hmm. institutions and so on. What, what is the yeah. relationship between CNPC, the state and the party? Right. It, it's that was one of the the main uh, themes I wanted to explore in in writing the book because it was it's such a fascinating subject. Um, I think we have to look back at at CNPC's history in China to begin with. Now, CNPC used to be uh, China's Ministry of Petroleum Industry up until uh, 1988 when it became uh, a corporation, a state-owned corporation, though. And you know, it, we often forget when we hear about China's big oil investments in Africa and elsewhere, that China is a major oil producer. They're still the fifth largest oil producer in the world. And CNBC controls around half of that production. So the Ministry of Petroleum Industry and now CNBC have a very powerful economic role in China's economy. And they, particularly in the late 1950s, throughout the 60s and into the 70s, the Ministry of Petroleum, which is now CNBC, was central to politics in China because of its strong economic role. So Chairman uh, Mao Zedong, at, at, a, at a point in, in the 60s, started to appoint um, the leaders of, of the, the Ministry of Petroleum, the leaders of China's oil industry, into wider government roles on economic management. So CNBC has sort of fostered a close political relationship with the Communist Party, with the Chinese government, through its strong role in, in, in the Chinese economy historically. And then when CNPC started to become interested in investing overseas, beginning in the early 1990s, um, they looked for, to the Chinese government for help. Um, I mean, we often hear about Chinese national oil companies investing abroad as the arms of the state, so to speak, and locking up foreign oil for the exclusive use of China's domestic economy. But I think the Sudan case shows that uh, rather than being an arm of the state, CNPC was exploiting the, the Chinese government as an arm of the company. Um, when, when CNBC invested in Sudan in, first in 1995, uh, they were given loans um, by the... Uh, by the Exim, uh, Exim Bank of China, which was just formed a year before. So these were some of the initial sort of loans that were given to support Chinese investment in Africa well before um, the, the billion-dollar deals we hear about uh, almost on a monthly basis now. And so this was sort of getting uh, the feet wet of cooperation between Chinese state-owned companies and, and the policy banks in China. So CNBC, you know, it, it was in a a competitively weak position when it first invested in Sudan in the 90s, but it was able to exploit its close political relationship with the Communist Party at home to get you know, some of the very first loans that were given to African countries to support 
uh, Chinese investment abroad. Sure. Well, let me let me just kind of for those who may not be entirely familiar with CNPC, we've talked about it. It's the uh, China National Petroleum Corporation. Uh, mm. It's the fourth largest company in the world. I mean, a lot of people may not be aware of that, and it's just ballooned over the past 10, 15 years, maybe in part due to its investments in places like Sudan. Uh, annual revenue now is at $425 billion, which makes it, uh, that would basically put it as the 27th largest country in the world. So, I mean, thinking about it in terms of GDP, uh, it's a massive, massive entity when we're talking about CNPC and the resources it can bring to bear. And I guess what, reading through your, your book, what, what struck me was, you know, you talked about CNPC and you talked about Sudan as being, you know, Sudan is the new Daqing. And for those of you who are familiar with Chinese oil history, Daqing was the, the first great find in, the, in, the, in, in China's modern history of oil. And it was celebrated in Chinese lore, in, in history, in such a way that Sudan later became celebrated. And what was interesting was just as the United States and the West were falling out of favor with Sudan, let's not forget uh, President uh, Bill Clinton bombed Khartoum, uh, accusing Omar Bashir of uh, terrorism and, 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 and uh, um, giving, uh, hiding uh, Osama bin Laden himself. The Chinese were getting very, very excited. And you said it's a must-stop diplomatic, you know, place for, for Chinese high-level visitors to go to. So there was almost this intersection. As the Americans are leaving, as the West is shunning Sudan, the Chinese are turning it into Daqing. How did that happen? Right. Um, I think it happened because uh, Sudan and the Sudanese government in particular made it happen. I think we often you know, take Chinese oil investments in Africa as something that's being pushed on African governments. But uh, Sudan had sort of maintained a, a relationship with China um, since 1959 and, and had a you know, economic ties, cultural ties, trade ties, but nothing too big. Um, but when the American oil company Chevron, who, who actually discovered much of the oil in Sudan uh, during, during the late 1970s and early 80s, when it announced its departure um, in 1992, Sudan basically started turning east, looking east for, for new investors. And and President Bashir was, was taking trips to Malaysia, taking tip, trips to China to try to seek uh, new oil companies to come and invest. And, and at first, the Chinese were hesitant. Um, CNBC was not ready so in, in the early 90s to make a big splash in the international oil industry. But by the, the late 90s, uh, with, with the Sudanese government still looking for an investor, uh, CNBC had done some initial investments around the world, smaller investments, and decided that it, it, would, it would take a, pl a stab at Sudan. And, you know, Sudan very quickly became um, central to its international portfolio uh, from, from around uh, the late 1990s on. And it, it really became the center of, of its international engine, just like uh, Daqing had been uh, the center of, of its domestic operations. And I mean, Sudan, for instance, you know, we often hear that it represents around five, six percent of, of Chinese oil imports during the past decade. But for CNPC, for its international operations, it represented around 40 percent of its uh, production. 
and 7% even of its total production. So this was a major uh, profit-generating um, investment. Uh, more so, I think that Sudan was sort of the, the, the crown jewel of CNPC's international operations because it was the first time that CNPC could deploy its many uh, oil service and construction companies overseas. Now, many big oil companies outsource a lot of the, the activities that one needs uh, to have done to, to drill an oil well, for example, uh, build a road, uh, get, you, get some uh, port, porta cabins to, to house your staff, feed your staff, bring in equipment. Um, CNBC does all this itself, and that, that, that's been another big financial boon for the company that it has all these service uh, subsidiaries underneath of it. So CNBC was really able to cultivate uh, an international workforce in Sudan. Uh, it's, it's, when they first went abroad, they only had a few people who, who spoke English well. They had very few people with any international experience. And Sudan sort of uh, allowed them to cut their international teeth. So that's how it really became you know, mythical in, in the Chinese oil industry as, as the place where uh, the Chinese uh, first started to invest abroad in international oil. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the the lives of these Chinese oil workers. Um, you know, kind of you you mentioned in the book that Chevron, you know, kind of left Sudan originally because of rebel attacks on their workers, mm. um, and then you know, kind of the Chinese themselves have faced violence and kidnappings and so on over the years. Um, right. And recently, um, China's top envoy in Africa, Zhong Zhenghua, said that China needs to have a bigger um, a bigger presence, international presence. And particularly mentioned, it's China's, um, you know, kind of lots of the, the large amounts of Chinese, um, you know, interests abroad. Um, can you give us an idea about what they're doing to keep their workers safe, and how do you think they're going to keep them safe in the future? Well, I think in in Sudan things had uh, things turned for the worse uh, in around. In a, in around 2005. I mean, it, Sudan turned from a commercial success story to more a story of insecurity and political instability, which we see carrying on in South Sudan today. And, and the Chinese oil workers started to face uh, more kidnappings, more attacks, more looting um, from, from their operations in, in what, is, what is now South Sudan. And there was an incident in, in 2008 which really galvanized thinking on, on security and political risk within CNPC and I think the wider uh, Chinese establishment, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Commerce, and, and other state-owned oil companies. And they, they dubbed this, this incident the 1018 incident. It happened on uh, October 18th, um, 2008. And basically five Chinese oil workers were killed by a, by a local militia in Sudan, and it was the first time really that CNBC had had such a dramatic violent incident take place. And what this caused the company to do was to start thinking about security more on a, on a systematic basis. They started giving security training to, to their international uh, rotation staff. They started to engage international political risk consultancies for advice, and this was quite a big move for, for a company that is quite shelled up, that doesn't like uh, it being discussed in Chinese media or international media, but to actually engage uh, international political risk consultancies was, was, an open, an op was opening up the company to a certain degree. 
so the company has tried to improve its its own independent um, ability to handle security, and I think that at the same time uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Commerce in China is trying to aid the companies uh, in this way as well. Um, I think actually one of the the more uh, interesting uh, changes I've seen in the company and to a certain degree the, the Chinese government in, in South Sudan, I witnessed uh, when I was there in, in the capital Juba last September. And I was able really to meet with, with CNBC officials and, and the Chinese embassy staff and this was quite uh, surprising because I, I had been traveling to to Sudan for years, and it was always quite uh, pain, uh, p- quite painful to just try to get a meeting with with someone at CNPC. Uh, for instance, it took me three years really to sit down with a Chinese oil man in, in Khartoum, uh, and when I when I visited Juba last September, it took three days um, because hmm. they've really opened up to engaging. Uh, outside actors uh, to to improving their stakeholder relations, even with, with researchers. Well, that's encouraging. So I think they're really making improvements on um, trying to engage local communities, media, civil society. I mean, last year in, in Juba, they host. Um, they were part of a, a a civil society meeting hosted by a British non-for-profit called Safer World on corporate responsibility mm-hmm. and conflict sensi- sensitivity. And I mean, although these. These events don't, you know, have dividends in themselves. They don't pay off uh, by themselves. I mean, these were exactly the the types of engagement that CNBC had been shunning for years. So, the you know the unstable and insecure local environment had had really caught on to the company that it needed to try to to have a better engagement beyond just uh, the South Sudanese government sure. or just the Sudanese government. You know, one of the things that Kobus and I were trying to do as the, the diplomacy was underway earlier this year uh, over the South Sudan, internal fighting in South Sudan, not with Sudan, which was last year and the year before, is we were trying to kind of understand China's diplomacy in the region. Uh, China was given credit for bringing this, the, the rival parties together. In fact, they were given credit for helping to end the, the, the hostilities. Uh, but there was never any details. And I'm curious to hear what you think, uh, how your interpretation of the diplomacy and what China's role is playing, and what does it represent in terms of China's broader diplomacy in Africa, do we expect to see a more robust Chinese diplomacy, maybe in places like the DRC or in other conflict zones where the Chinese have investments comparable to what they have in Sudan? Yeah, I think, I think just as the Chinese corporations have, have went global, we're seeing now the, the Chinese diplomacy headed by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, having to follow, being forced to follow, um, and try to protect uh, Chinese economic interests in Africa and elsewhere. Um, I think that it's hard to, to really put a finger on uh, how the Chinese role in the current uh, negotiations in, in South Sudan was effective. Um, it's, it's a positive sign, of course, that Chinese diplomats are, are engaging um, and taking part in the international effort to, to broker a, a peace, to broker peace in, in South Sudan, and I think they're doing this um, based on on pressure from you know the U.S. government and European governments, but also because they they have a, a domestic constituency in China um, that has been quite critical of of the government's inability to protect uh, Chinese investments and Chinese citizens. 
over the past years where we've seen instability in North Africa and the Middle East. So I think that you know, Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs is, is both trying to protect uh, CNBC's investments, but also protect China's global image. Um, and, and really breaking away from this long-standing foreign policy of non-interference in, dom- in the domestic affairs of, affairs of foreign countries. Um, but, but let's not forget that this ceasefire negotiation in South Sudan has really fallen apart uh, in the last couple of days and, and fighting's restarted. So, the, I mean, China cannot solve South Sudan's problems. Uh, it can certainly be a positive uh, force uh, behind helping out, helping the international effort. But the, the South Sudanese um, are the ones that really decide. I mean, th- there's a proverb in China that says, a mighty dragon cannot defeat a local snake. That, you know, powerful government ministers in Beijing can't really control the actions of local officials in the provinces in China. And I think this really holds true for China's international expansion as well, that it, it, um, it simply can't control local politics. Um, you know, kind of one of the interesting as- aspects of South Sudan is that um, it's not, you know, China isn't the only player there. There's also, you mm. know, several other East Asian and South Southeast Asian and South Asian companies involved. So, um, you know, kind of comparing China and India is, is one of the main themes of your book. And uh, I was wondering if you could give us a, just a thumbnail outline of how do you see the Chinese and Indian approaches differing in terms of South Sudan? Well, be, the main difference, I think, is is the political power of the Chinese national oil company, CNBC, compared to its main Indian counterpart, which is called uh, ONGC, and ONGC Videsh, its foreign subsidiary. Um, ONGC Videsh uh, and, and ONGC don't have the same sort of economic strength that CNBC does. India is not such a large oil producer as China. And India has a ministry of petroleum and natural gas. China does not. So the in India, there's sort of this bureaucratic buffer between the executives of ONGC and the uh, political leadership in India. Whereas in China, some of the executives and former executives of, of Chinese national oil companies have become uh, high-level party leaders, such as Zhou Yang Kang uh, and others. So I think that uh, basically there is uh, a bigger role in India... In cons- there's a bigger role the government plays in India in considering how ONGC Videsh's international investments might affect their wider foreign policy. And we've seen on a number of times that the Indian government has basically blocked ONGC Videsh's uh, investments in countries, uh, for instance, in Nigeria and Ecuador, where the government thought that there was too much uh, political risk. We don't really often see that with Chinese national oil companies because of their political power in China. The book is The New Kings of Crude, China, India, and the Global Struggles for Oil in Sudan and South Sudan. Kobus and I were, were given uh, some advanced uh, sneak peeks at it, and it is a, a wonderful book. And really, it's uh, I really recommend it in part for those of you who are kind of intimidated from academic books. You know, people who come from think tanks oftentimes write very thickly worded books. This one reads almost like what I would say, and I hope not to trivialize it, but like a great Vanity Fair article. 
uh, it really captures your attention and uh, and it's very very engaging and and you you kind of it's very eye opening. So I highly recommend it. It is available on Amazon, but I don't think that's the best place to buy it. Uh, Luke, tell us a little bit about how people can get their hands on the book and as it's rolling out around the world. Yeah, it's it's still rolling out. Um, one place to get it, of course, is, is Amazon UK. Um, but if you're outside of, of the UK and Europe, you can check out uh, the publisher's website. Website. It's called Hearst Publishers. That's a, another way to get it now. But in the coming months, it will it will have there will be an American edition. Uh, there will be another ed- edition in South Asia, and it will become more readily available. But for the moment, I think the best uh, bet is either the Amazon UK site or or Hearst. And Kindle editions are coming eventually, right? Yes, I think Kindle uh, editions will be uh, available in the autumn. Look up uh, Luke Patey, P-A-T-E-Y, and uh, look for the book. It's an excellent read. Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. What we do at the end of every show is we really want to kind of drop people off in your front door of the digital doorstep. And where can people follow you if they are, want to hear what you're reading, writing, and thinking you know, these days? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at, at Luke Patey. On Twitter, um, I have a website actually, LukePady.com, which which has a lot of my uh, work uh, available there, and uh, you can find me on the, on my institute's website, DIIS.DK, as well. Wonderful. And Cobus, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Stadnesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E, and I'm also on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project, and you'll see my name in brackets when I comment. That's right. So Kobus and I are comment, are posting uh, articles uh, almost 18 hours a day between Asia and Africa, uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, we're now at over 150,000 followers on this page. Uh, we'd love to have you join our conversations. Uh, we're, we're, we've talked about Sudan quite a bit. Uh, We basically cover every major topic. And if you'd like to follow us uh, on this podcast, the best way, of course, is to subscribe via iTunes. Just look for us in the iTunes store at China Africa Project. But you can also listen to us on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa, and even on the Amazon Kindle. So we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 